Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is March 13th. Last week I could stand outside and welcome you all in easily this week. It's a little cold. Our scripture today comes from Luke 15, 11 through 32. Um, I'm actually going to be reading from the message, though. I think the NIV is going to pop up on the screen because I didn't tell her I was going to read from the message. You all know this story, so I figured I'd do a different version. Then he said, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to the father, Father, I want right now what is coming to me. So the father divided the property between them, and it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. And after he had gone through all of his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there, who assigned him to a field, uh, to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs of the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. And here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and I have sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. I've got, he got right up and went to his home, to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out and embraced him and kissed him. His son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But his father wasn't listening. He called his servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes. Dress him. Put the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We are going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. Here is my son, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All of this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music. He heard the dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked, what's going on? He told him, your brother has come home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has come home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he would not listen. The son said, look, how many years have I stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief? But have you ever thrown me a party, a party for my friends and I? Then this son of yours has thrown away his, your money and shows up now. To go all out on a feast? His father said, son, you don't understand. 
you're with me all the time and celebrate and everything of mine that is I, everything that is mine is yours but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate this brother of yours was dead and he's alive he was lost and he is found amen one of the reasons that Jesus speaks so well to us even 2,000 years after his life on earth is that he was a storyteller. He always told things in terms of parables, uh, created stories to illustrate a point. And to start off talking about parable, I want to jump up to someone who is still kind of in the old days compared to how we think, but frankly, much more modern than Jesus to Abe Lincoln, because he was, after all, also a storyteller. Now, the story I'm going to tell, actually, you can find it in, in uh, the 2012 film Lincoln. It's one of my favorite films of all time. By Steven Spielberg, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Lincoln, and it's awesome. Now, that is based off a book uh, by Doris Kern Goodwin, where she tells kind of his entire life story, uh, but... Of course, the movie can't cover it all. It's only really about his time surrounding the 13th Amendment, the amendment in our Constitution that says there's no more slavery in our union. It's full of stories. And they had to pull this one out to illustrate something about justice and legality. It happens when Lincoln is sitting with his cabinet trying to, to tell them why it is so important, even if it doesn't look like passing this amendment is necessarily legal or not. Yeah, they really had that question back in the day. So he tells this story, and I'm, I'm taking the version that is told in Lincoln. Unfortunately, I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis, so I cannot do the awesome job he did. I highly recommend the movie. Back when I rode the legal circuit in Illinois, I defended a woman from Metamora named Melissa Goins, 77 years old. They say she murdered her husband. He was 83. He was choking her, and uh, she grabbed a hold of a stick of firewood and fractured his skull. In and he died. In his will, he wrote, I expect she has killed me. And if I get over it, I will have my revenge. No one, was no one was keen to see her convicted. He was that kind of husband. I asked the prosecuting attorney if I might have a short conference with my client. And she and I went into a room in the courthouse, but I alone emerged. The window in the room was found to be wide open and it believed the old lady may have climbed out of it. I told the bailiff, right before I left her in the room, she asked me where she could get a good drink of water, and I told her Tennessee. Mrs. Goins was seen no more in Metamora. Enough justice had been done. They even forgave the bondsmen her bail. I think we all like to recognize when true justice happens. 
After all, who could really think that it's right to hang an old woman who has survived decades of abuse of her husband, only to finally reach out and harm him back? We may not agree that it's ever right to harm a person or not, or whether what she did was right or not, but I think we can all at least agree that it's certainly not right to hang an old woman of those circumstances, right? We like the idea that we can be reasonable people and that we can correctly balance the scales of justice. Now, justice is a squishy word. And so we often use things that kind of firm up what it looks like. And so we often use the scale. I mean, how often, you know, you look to see, you know, justice, a statue of uh, justice personified on top of some building, some courthouse or capital, with sword, blindfold, and always scales in one hand. It's long been envisioned that way, that when a crime happens, it unbalances the scales, and we, in our wisdom, can prescribe just the right punishment to bring those scales back into balance. Now, this hasn't always been the case. Justice law has changed over the millennia. In its earliest forms, it was generally whatever the person in charge decided what was justice. And in a city-state, it could almost work. You have one guy in charge. You have the surrounding city and then the surrounding countryside and maybe some small villages beyond that. And they all answered to a king. And you had a problem with your neighbor? Both of you went before the king and the king gave you justice. But some went beyond that. Some started to create code, what we would call law something that could be uh, used on kind of a flat surface. Everyone was subject to it. Well, our earliest known of that happened in uh, what we call Mesopotamia, the land between the Euphrates and the Tigris, modern-day Iraq. It's where Abraham was born. Actually, law predates Abraham. We think the first law was written about 2,400 years before Christ. That's over 4,000 years ago now. That's a ways back. But of course, the one that we remember most came a little bit after Abraham, about the time that Jacob and Joseph were alive. That's about 37-some hundred years ago. Thanks to this guy named Hammurabi. He's the sixth king of the first, um, the first empire of Babylon. Now, Hammurabi needed to answer another problem. When they had the code and it could be applied in their local area, that was easy. But, you know, when it was simple, like all you had to do was go to the local courthouse, and that's where the king lived, you could handle things. But now all of a sudden you had people in other cities that were sometimes days away in walking. So he would write down this law into stone, and that would be placed in different cities. So everyone had access to what the law was. We call this the Code of Hammurabi, and it's the reason why it is the oldest full body of law that we know of, because he wrote enough of them that it has survived the 3,700-some year, 3, years to our modern era. 
Now, you will find bits and pieces of Hammurabi's code even in our today judicial system. For instance, Hammurabi declared that people were innocent until proven guilty. That's 3,700 years old. That wasn't something we made up. There's a reason why his face is both adorns our Capitol building and is included in our Supreme Court, um, the main hearing room. You can find him there, right between Pharaoh Menes, who, who united Egypt and gave the first known body of law. We don't know what it was. We just know it was one of the first. And Moses, who, of course, brings us God's law. Now, Hammurabi's code approached um, balancing the scale simplistically, generally. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a bone for a bone, a life for a life. If you punch a person and you knock out their tooth, then your tooth gets pulled out. Simple. The, the scale is balanced with an equal and opposite punishment. Okay, that's how we often pictured. It was a little more complex than that. If you were of a higher class, then you usually didn't get your tooth knocked out. You could pay somebody. If you were of a lower class, you got your tooth knocked out, and then you got whipped on top of it. So it, it was a little more complex than that. But still. And it was meant to be applied evenly across his entire empire. But it did start to show something we, we take for granted in a modern system. A recognition that things aren't always black and white, yes and no, positive and negative. That sometimes there's nuance to the system. For instance, if you were a farmer and it was a year of extreme drought or extreme year of extreme flood beyond what a normal system of irrigation or dikes could handle, then you could be forgiven of the loans you had to take out for the planting that year. In fact, your rent could be forgiven. Your taxes could be forgiven for that year. Though much of the law seems barbaric by today's standards, some of it seems to have the kind of justice that we value today. As I said, justice is a squishy term. It depends really upon the society. For a while, it does seem rather barbaric by our standards today. It was quite just. It was actually progressive and revolutionary for its day. Just as later on, Moses' law would be even more progressive. In today's law, we continue to struggle with this. We continue to struggle with what is right and wrong, what is legal, what is just. Just as the story that we hear Lincoln telling, what he did was technically illegal, but I think we can agree was just. Just as we can say in the civil rights movement, they weren't legal. Martin Luther King and the others were always breaking the law. But I think we can all agree that they were generally just in doing so. So we struggle. We struggle even today to balance those scales, to make it right. And I think that's why we have such a problem with this parable. I mean, we love the first part. As I told Gracie, I told the first part because you know what? I could make a four-year-old, I can tell a four-year-old that God will forgive us. But how do you explain the second part to them? It's hard. So we only tell the first part. You know, a, 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 
there is a boy. He goes to his dad and says, Dad, give me what's mine. And then he goes off and he lives an extravagant, decadent, uh, decadent hedonistic life. Pleasure. Whatever pleasure he wants, he buys it. Until at last the money runs dry and he becomes destitute. And he not only has brought shame to his family because he has done what he has done, but now he is working a job that every good upstanding Jew would be like, oh dear Lord, what are you doing? Okay, they wouldn't say, oh dear Lord. They would say, you know, oh dear heavens maybe. But he recognizes what he has done. He has recognized that he has sinned against his father and against God. And he decides, I'm going back to dad. Maybe I can work as a servant there. It would be better than feeding these pigs. So he goes back. The dad spies him, runs out to him, embraces him, brushes aside the, 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 the apology and tells him, you know, let's get you dressed. New cloak, sandals, a ring. I know that seems like weird things to add in here. Why sandals, a cloak, and a ring? Well, sandals were only worn by those, um, by those who were part of the family. If you were a servant, you didn't get sandals. The ring, again, a symbol of the family. The cloak, again, a symbol of the family. He is not saying, you know, come back and be a servant. He's saying, you are restored to your position as my son. We'll stop there, right? That's where we stop. It's wonderful. After all, sometime in our lives, we were surely a prodigal son, right? And we needed that forgiveness, that assurity that we got to come back into the fold. We need to know that. We need to know that for our loved ones who we think might be going through a prodigal time, that they will be welcomed back into the fold. You know, two weeks ago, I told the next parable in the story. It's the next set of verses. It's the, the shrewd or dishonest manager, steward, whatever you want to call it, according to the, the version you read. And I had a member right back there in that corner tell me they are glad we did that parable and not the prodigal son. And I had to apologize because I said prodigal son is the one we're going to do last in this part of the series. Sorry. And I'm sure it wasn't because of the first part, but because of the second. But it's because of the second that I think this may be the most important parable that Jesus tells in Luke. For the man has two sons. You cannot have a younger son with an, el an elder son. And in uh, most, as in with most ancient Near East cultures, the elder son got it all when dad kicked the bucket. So, or at least double what everyone else got. So the elder son has been there the whole time, working loyally, working industriously, being the good kid. While his brother was out there enjoying that hedonistic pleasure, he was out in the fields. When his brother was destitute and lying with the pigs, he was going to synagogue. He had done everything right. 
In fact, he missed the fact that his brother came home because he was at work doing what he was supposed to. But then he comes home and they're having a party. Not just a party, but a huge party full of music and dancing and beef. You did not kill a cow for beef unless it was a really good reason back then. Cows were worth a lot of money. I mean, it's like, you know, bringing your kid the Ferrari. Don't ever buy your kid a Ferrari. I don't care how much money you have. No teenager should have a Ferrari. That's just asking for trouble. That's my own personal beliefs about fast cars. Get a Ferrari when you're 30 or 40 and you've earned it yourself. Toyota Corollas for all teenagers. Sorry, Jay. Anyway. That applies to grace. Anyway, he comes home and he finds out this party is going on. He's like, Dad, how dare you do this for him? I have been here this whole time. You haven't even given me a goat, the most basic form of meat you could possibly give me so I could throw my own party. Where is the fairness in this story? Where is the justice? I mean, we... we at this point, you're all here. You're the ones who have made the commitment. You are all the elder brothers. Of course this story feels unfair because you are the elder brothers. You're the ones who are doing the work, who are being here, or are trying to live the good life in this world and coming together to worship as we were commanded by God. It seems horribly unbalanced. Like someone has just dropped the biggest lead weight they could find on the scale. Surely a good and just God would not allow this kind of thing to happen. Right? Okay, we can look at it a couple ways. First off, you could say the younger brother's already had his punishment, right? I mean, he lived about the worst life a Jew could live. He was feeding pigs... And he was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs. Which, by the way, it would not have been like when we say corn cobs today. Because they didn't have corn. Uh, but, you know, it's still the same idea. Eating the part of the grain that really isn't edible. Surely that was the writing of the scale. And the, the, the elder's anger is unfounded. But it's understandable because he hasn't known that his brother suffered. For all he knew, his brother just went out and lived decadently and has come home. So it's, it's, it's unfounded but understandable. And it will be made clear to him that the scales have been righted, that his brother has gone through a great tragedy in order to reach, reach this understanding. Now this assumption that God requires us to not only go through a repentance or a, a basic atonement, but to suffer, to give up a portion of our lives, a portion of our energy, to give up as an atonement, as a sacrifice. That makes sense in modern, in ancient Judaism. Even some forms of modern Christianity still believe that this suffering redeems what you have done in the past. You know, you have done something bad and now you must suffer for it. But this does not make any sense in the life of Jesus. After all, did not Jesus die 
Did not Jesus shed his blood in order to bring us a direct line to God so that we didn't have to suffer to make things right, but rather we could just repent and receive the grace of God? I would argue that the younger's trial has nothing to do with atonement, with riding the scales, but simply it is a warning to us that what a, what a hedonistic, selfish life like that can lead us to. This is not justice being enacted, but simply the results of a life not well lived. Or maybe it has something to do with uh, the last verses, the ones I didn't go over already, where, where the father goes to his elder son and says, look, you've always been with me and all that I have is yours. After all, he's the elder son. He's going to get the greater portion of the, um, uh, yeah, the greater portion of the inheritance. That would make it fair, right? Yeah, your younger brother, we're celebrating, he's back, but you know what? You're going to get everything after I die anyway. This is great for you. I mean, that kind of echoes Joseph, right? Joseph, who, who is beat up and thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, sold into a house in which, sure, he does well for himself, but ends up being thrown into prison over a crime he didn't commit. He spends time in prison until finally he comes, uh, becomes Pharaoh's um, consult and eventually the, the second most powerful man. And when Jacob passes, then Joseph is, becomes the head of the family instead of his eldest brother, Reuben, or Levi, or Simeon, or Judah. Like, he's one of the youngest. In fact, he is like the next to youngest kid in the family. Well, I don't like that either. If you think about it, that means heaven's got a class system, like Babylon. Aren't we supposed to be better than Babylon? That makes no sense. I mean, okay, like, you were born into the church, you lived a good life your entire life, you are a first-class citizen in, in heaven. And those who came to Jesus later in life, they're second-class citizens. Those who lived really bad lives and, and came to Jesus on the deathbed, they are third-class citizens, right? No. No. I, that, that's actually how the, the uh, middle-aged church thought it worked. If you want to read Dante's you know, Divine Comedy, I know I've quoted um, bits and pieces out of the Inferno. There's also Paradiso, Paradise. And in Paradise, the better human you are during your life, the closer the God you get to be in the better your afterlife is. Now that seems to run again directly contrary to the life and death of Christ. I mean, did not Paul tell us in Colossians, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but in Christ all are in, I'm sorry, but Christ is all in all is in Christ. We are equal before God. So no, that's not the writing of the scales either. I think we need to go to a different gospel. Another gospel that's just only going to reinforce what I think really is the point. Now, this is a parable that's only found in Luke. 
there's a parable that's only found in Matthew that tells the same basic story. There was a farmer with a great big vineyard at harvest time. He didn't have enough help hired to pick all the grapes. So he goes, to the, he goes to the marketplace and he hires some day laborers first thing in the morning. Then he goes back a little later in the day and he hires some more. Then he hires a little more later until finally he hires the last batch just an hour before dusk and pay time. The end of the day comes and he goes up to those who had only worked for an hour and gives them an entire day's wage. Then he goes up to those who had only worked since mid-afternoon, gives them an entire day's wage. The same for those who worked from lunch, from 11 C's, from second breakfast, and from first breakfast. Yes, I just went all Tolkien on you there. I'm getting hungry. The odor's just wafting in. I've not had second breakfast or 11 C's. And of course, those who have been working all day since they got them from the beginning at the marketplace are incensed. How dare you give us the same amount of pay as those who only worked an hour? And the vineyard owner says, it's my money. I get to do what I want with it. It's not up to you. This actually also is found in one place in the Old Testament as well in the story of Job. Job, of course, has everything that a man could want in those ancient days. And he is the perfect, the perfect man. He does everything he should do, and he follows God's ways, even though the, where it takes place is not Judea. It is somewhere else. He's probably not a Jew. It's kind of confusing, but it's meant to be. He argues with his friends. They keep telling him, you must have done something wrong. You're being punished. He says, no, I haven't. And another guy comes and says, you're all wrong. Until finally God shows up in a whirlwind and talks directly to him. And do you know what God's answer is to why bad things happen to Job? You don't get to know. Sorry. I, I wish I could read all of Job 40 to you. Read Job 40 if you want to know God's full answer. But it comes down to this. He goes, look, you see this amazing creature I created that eats the grass and is huge? I call it behemoth. I made that. Look at this beautiful creature that lives in the ocean that is magnificent and huge. I made that. I call it Leviathan. I made all of these things. I set up the pillars of the earth. I set up the pillars that hold up the sky. I made the mountains. I carved the rivers. I made everything. And you don't get to decide how it works. We don't get to decide if the party's for us or not. We don't get to decide what's just. Hmm. I don't, I don't find it comfortable. I'm okay if you don't all find that comfortable either. Remember what I said at the beginning. When it comes to justice, when it comes to the law, it's not simply what the words are, but it's the society in which they exist. The law reflects the morals of the community. And when it comes down to it, our sense of justice 
reflects our morals here on earth. They don't necessarily reflect God's. God's morals are much larger, much bigger, and far more expansive than we can ever imagine. We don't get to decide what's fair and what's unfair. And I think this is why this is perhaps the most important parable in Luke. It is, after all, well, I think it is, after all, his entire message upon the walk to, to his followers, to us, that we don't get to decide who is welcomed into the kingdom, that it's up to the individual to repent and come, and God will make things right. And God alone makes those things right. Why don't we judge others? It's not up to us. It's up to him. My original opening was reflecting actually on my childhood, as I often do. When you have two brothers or a family with multiple children, I am sure you have all heard that phrase, it's not fair. We used to argue about everything. For instance, baths. Nobody wanted to take a bath first, which makes no sense. You're all going to take a bath anyway, but we always wanted to be the last one to have to take a bath. So much that my parents had to put these three magnetic numbers up on the fridge. One for me, two for Jacob, three for Laban. Every day, whoever was last, the last time we took a bath, would get shifted around to the front, which I guess for you all would be that way. We get shifted around to the front, and the person who was first goes next, the person who was in the middle goes last, and so on and so forth every single day. Which as an adult, I realize is really, really dumb, because you want to take the first bath, because we're all sharing the same bath water. But of course, when you have a bunch of prepubescent boys, it's not a huge difference. They're all about the same level of dirty. Anyway, I've grown out of that. I realized that that wasn't about fairness or justice. It was only about me feeling what I was getting was what I ought to be given. I've grown out of that. Now I'm a human living in a human body, living in a human world. And eventually I'll grow out of this too. And I'll realize that it wasn't a matter of whether it was fair or unfair, the way I believe the world. But God's got it under control. God's handling it. So for now, I'm not going to worry about whether my little prodigal brothers... Okay, to be honest, they're both pretty cool guys. I have no problems with either of them. Laban's living about as close to a prodigal life as you can. He's in California now. He'll be back up in, in Alaska soon. But he's not doing anything wrong. He's just the guy who likes to live on the road. But it's not up to me whether God celebrates their party or not. Because it doesn't matter. I should just be happy when they come home. So let's just be happy. 
and not worry about whether the scales have been made level or not. Your brother who has died has come back. He was lost and has been found. It is not fair has actually become a bit of a mantra in our family in this last year. Owing what had happened, it was something we had to say a lot. It's something we have to say a lot in this world because so often things are unfair or even unjust. But when it comes to a lot of things, rely on God and know that God will take care of things. Be open to the movement of the Spirit and know that God will lead everyone back. Amen.